Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. That's the biggest question of our being, I think, that we are living a daily life that is so infused to my understanding with a life of the spirit that it isn't segmented. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lil Coban. She's an editor, arts columnist, and painter. She's a graduate of the University of Connecticut and has degrees in art and creative writing. In addition to a long history in editorial work, Lil Copan has worked as a curatorial assistant at an art museum, a high school English teacher, and a corn detasseler in Iowa fields. She leads workshops on spiritual writing and creative nonfiction. She's a longtime Bostonian who now lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Today we're talking about her recent book, a novel called Little Hours. Lil Copan, it is a delight to have you join us here on Things Not Seen. The delight is mutual. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to give our listeners a little bit of background in your book, Little Hours. Structurally, it is a book that is kind of an older style of writing in the sense that it is told entirely through letters. And I want to start there and ask you about this. So the letters all come, except for one, from a character named Sister Athanasius. So tell us a little bit about Sister Athanasius and where she resides. Sister Athanasius resides in the Weymouth, South Shore of Boston area within a religious organization, the Sisters of Hildegard of Bingen, which is not an actual mother house, but it is in the Benedictine tradition. Um, within, it's a very small order, and within the small order is a, an even smaller group of nuns. One is a birder, and some of the sense of place and locale are focused in that area. Sister Athanasius is a nun who is in her 70s, and her role is is a caregiver, among other things, to an older nun. And um, the letters begin from this sort of wise, but also seeking Sister A, who is 
really trying to send these letters with great affection and also you see the unspooling of a spiritual life through the letters. And the the correspondence that we are privy to in your book, Little Hours, begins with a prompting from an outsider, a woman named Miriam. She's married. She has children that are going into adolescence, and she is Protestant, or at least she begins as Protestant. And so tell us a little bit about, as you were beginning to think about this novel, it's clear that you had a very strong sort of characterization, both of Sister Athanasius, Sister A, but also of Miriam. I guess I'm interested in where the spark came. When did these two voices start interacting in your head? And when did you start to say to yourself, I need to write that down? <laughs> spark began, I was for a long time part of a local writing group called Kitchen Table Writers in the Boston area. And I had been on retreat to a small um, monastic community and somehow got into conversation as we were beginning a writing prompt. And as we were heading into the prompt, somebody had asked about the retreat as well as what it means for somebody who's married, has children and wants to go on retreat. Like, what do I do with my, you know, like, what are the things that need to happen in order to go on retreat? And somehow the writing began from that point as though it were an older sister who was responding to this person saying, where do I begin? And the letters, in a sense, flowed from there. Now, what's fascinating to me is you've taken this imaginary monastery, the Order of St. Hildegard of Bingen, and you have brought forward some things that we might say are anchored in the real world. If a person were to go to uh, a monastery, a cloister, some area where women religious have lived together, you would find that there are some things in your book that really ring true. And a reader would also find things that are definitely fictitious. And so it's clear to me that you did a lot of research and possibly a lot of visiting in order to begin to build up this monastery in your mind. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that process. How did you begin to build this monastery in your mind? That's really interesting. I, I have visited and ongoingly visit um, religious communities for retreat or because they're local and out of personal interest and devotion. I think this in some ways began both as a spiritual exploration in that sense, but also an exploration of the spirituality of land. And this, in my imagination, is set along the coast and of the South Shore, and also follows the season. So as I followed liturgical seasons, as the letters, you'll see that it's a feast day, or it's a certain kind of day as a letter is written. There's also a sense of a, the sort of se- following the seasonal year and the, the seasons of the land. I think those both came together in a way that surprised me and echo were echoes into each other. So in some ways, it was both spirituality, but also the spirituality of place itself that became very informing for what moved forward. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, writing coach, arts columnist, and painter. And we're talking today about her first novel, Little Hours. Well, as you're talking about the ways in which the liturgical year and the seasons all factored into the construction of the narrative of this book, Little Hours, I was really fascinated that there's another kind of rhythm that comes into the narrative, and that's the rhythm of baseball. And in particular, the rhythm of the Red Sox, their uh, team, for listeners who don't know, they're in the Boston area where your novel is set. And one of the things that was interesting to me was that you were tracking a certain set of victories and losses that happened in the real world. And so in that sense, we could actually go back to the box scores and we could follow along with your novel. And so it's interesting to me any time that fiction chooses to reach out into the real world and anchor itself there in some way. And I'd love to hear about why and how you found to sift portions of the real world into your fictional world. Tell me about that. I think with any fiction writing, there's always that sense of a person's own voices, mentors, experiences that necessarily come through. And I I think part of, I think it felt natural to me to bring in those things that were of the actual seasons in which I was doing the writing and was paying deep attention to the sisters, but also paying attention to my environment as I was living in the Boston area in, in Dorchester. And so it was less an intentionality as as it was a way of thinking about community and what builds community. And then also reflecting on, I had come new to the Boston area when I began writing and writing this. And one of the communities that formed for me or was preformed was a community of Red Sox fans. And they are, very profoundly invested in the life of baseball and the seasons of baseball. And when pitchers and catchers are announced, they're all in. So I think part of it was a natural feeling of these communities speaking to each other in a way that is profoundly religious. It's devoted but also, I think around that time, I had heard about a nun who had done some sports casting, I think maybe even for Cleveland. And so I started just putting things together that were just sparks in the imagination. And they came together in a profound way for one of the sisters and then ultimately all of them to become Red Sox fans. Well, and this was a portion in your novel, Little Hours, that really fascinated me. You mentioned this character. I believe the character's name was Sister Anne. And there, there's a point where 
the the connection to baseball at first is almost verboten. It's almost like something that's done in secret. And there's even like secret tapping codes on the walls. If someone is listening to a game quietly, they'll tap on the wall to say home run or first base or whatever. And at some point, the mother superior begins to find out about this. And and at that point, there is a question as to whether this is pulling the sisters away from their proper adoration of God. And I was really moved that Sister Anne spoke up, and she's a superannuated sister. She's very old at this point, but she says, you know, before I had a love of God, I had a love of baseball, and it was actually my love of baseball that helped me to find the love of God. That was profound for me because it really blew out of the water my expectations about what is worldly and what is holy for these sisters. But I'd love to hear about how you as an author were thinking about this, the sort of interplay of the worldly and the holy for this little community. Yeah, and I think it goes again to my own personal, like, how do I work this out in myself? Those things that I see and experience as profound, as holy, as spiritually engage me that for somebody else does not have that spiritual engagement. And also what in more restrictive communities, religious communities, what that also looks like and where there can be sort of a grace for both and an understanding for both. So I think part of it was writing my own way into what I was experiencing and trying to, you know, it's so magical to have characters who, well, they have their own personas and yet they seem willing to explore things with you in that sense. So having a mother superior, having somebody who is in this, you know, tapping on the walls and it's verboten and yet it is life-giving how can all those things play together? And so it, it's, it was alchemy. <laughs> now, before we go to break, I have to ask, you mentioned that when you came to the Boston area, you happened upon an avid community of Red Sox fans. Did you yourself become a baseball fan or even fanatic at that point? Or was this pure research for you? Oh, no, it was born of love. I had a local neighbor who every day she was elderly and she, at first I would see her and her husband walking down to the tee and going to the baseball games and then coming back late from the games. And then he, at some point had passed away. She kept going to the games and very frail. Sometimes I tried to just be there to walk her from the tee to her home. And she had the little transistor radio. She had her scoring cards. I think there was something about, you know, the Simone Weil deep attention to something as well as a community that you could start a conversation with somebody and feel at home. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, writing coach, arts columnist and painter, and we're talking today about her recent book, Little Hours, which is her first novel. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, arts columnist, and painter. She is a graduate of the University of Connecticut and has degrees in art and creative writing, in addition to a long history in editorial work. She's worked as a curatorial assistant in an art museum, a high school English teacher, and a corn detasseler in the Iowa fields. Today we're talking about her recent book, Little Hours, which is her first novel. So, We've mentioned already that Little Hours is a novel of letters. It is correspondence from a woman religious in a fictional monastery to Miriam, who is an outsider who initially reached out to her, sort of asking about some of the life of the monastery, particularly around bird watching. I was struck, though, because as I read your book, Little Hours, I was reminded again and again of all of the spiritual literature that I have read from various women saints through the centuries. I think about St. Therese of the Little Flower, or I think about Julian of Norwich, or I think about Hildegard of Bingen. And in each case, a lot of the spiritual writings that we have of them comes in the form of letters. They were avid letter writers. And so as I'm reading through this book, I feel as if I'm reading some of those ancient spiritual texts. So I want to ask you to talk about how you were thinking about those kind of ripples and resonances and connections with this larger epistolary spiritual tradition as you were writing this book. Yeah, I... I have read deeply in a lot of the medieval women writers, spiritual writers, spiritual biographies and letters. And I have found, and some of the letters that have come from some of the either doctors, the women doctors of the church and other saints and writers have often, some of the letters have been very pointed in terms of addressing some of the sort of ills of society and ills of the church. And I have found that the ways in which language is used both to chide or to address and chide, maybe not the strongest word, popes and world leaders also somehow came with this really beautiful insistence on a sort of a ground of being, a spiritual ground of being, a moral ground of being that had a fierceness, but also a gentleness. And I have liked the ways in which letters have all the different tones of voices and affections and fraughtness. And I think letters have that ability to hold so many things. Well, and this is reflected 
even in the greetings that come at the beginning of each of these letters from Sister Athanasius. And I, I began, as I was reading your book, Little Hours, to sort of track the sine wave of these greetings. Because sometimes as she's writing to this character, Miriam, she begins the letter with Miriam Dear, which I thought was a really interesting way of beginning the letter because it's a little different from the customary Dear Miriam. But then at certain points we get to my Miriamist Miriam or or dearest Miriam. And I, I really found that there were moments where the affection almost bordered on intimacy, even though these characters, other than their exchanges of letters, have never met. And I'm I was fascinated at how you evoked that feeling of intimacy, even in just the opening of a letter. And I want to hear more about that. How did that feel to you as a writer, as you were emoting with these characters? How did you surf that kind of almost intimate interaction between these two characters? Yeah, I think it is a surfing. I think that's a great word. I there's somebody who's doing the writing and then there are the sort of imagined and I started feeling and I've had different people respond to the the sort of feeling of I feel like these people are real whereas they you have a sense that you're reading a novel about people this is somehow closer and I think in the writing as a writer, uh, I also felt like I was learning about these characters and I myself was drawn with a warmth to them and, and a love for them. So I think some of that is what seemed natural, like surfing the sort of natural, if there's going to be a natural exchange of letters, there is going to be an increasing warmth. You know, if their letters intended toward warmth, then there will be an increasing warmth. And as the letters go through, there's life is shared. Miriam shares the things of her life, even though you don't necessarily see them directly through her letters. They're quoted in um, Sister Athanasius's letters and you're necessarily closer. And I liked the play of language around what makes something. I'm, I have a Ukrainian background, and a lot of diminutive words are beloved words in Slavic cultures. And I think that's something that I found was something to bring into this novel. I want to return to something you said just a moment ago. You said, I feel like these people are real. And... I was struck by the fact that I was only seeing half of the letters here. I was seeing Sister Athanasius's letters, but not Miriam's letters. And I got really curious about your process. Somewhere in the cutting room floor, is there a trove of letters that you drafted that were written from Miriam so that you would know how Sister Athanasius was responding? Did you build this in that kind of epistolary way where you were literally writing letters back and forth and you chose to only show us half of them? Or in your mind, were you able to construct enough of Miriam that you knew what she had said and then Sister Athanasius could respond? I think it was the latter. I had at one point as a writing exercise to try to draft these letters and they only felt like they had a naturalness when 
Sister Athanasius was quoting a letter back, essentially, to Miriam. You said this, and I'm responding now. And there was a sense that I could pull on the poetic sensibility or the the personality. But when I wrote full letters, it never felt like it made sense in terms of that exchange. So I, but I hope that in the letters that came through that they revealed in as many aspects of Miriam as made sense for the, the novel. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, writing coach, arts columnist, and painter. And today we're talking about her recent novel, Little Hours. Well, I'm asking many of these structural questions because I know that in your professional life, you have often worked with other authors asking these exact sorts of questions. You have asked, are you structuring this in the right way? Is this going to be the voicing or the style that is really going to reach the audience that you're intending to reach? And so I'm really curious how that experience of having these conversations with others factored into the decisions that you yourself made about structuring this book. Did you find that you had a natural instinct about how best to put this book together? Or as you have done for so many in your own professional life, did you find that you needed to rely on the eyes and the insights of others to help you find the right style and voicing for little hours? I think it's some of both. Uh, there is a, I felt incredibly humbled to have written and then come back in and have different voices, readers respond, edit, query. It was daunting. And I hope that I've gentled myself in the editorial work with the questions that I got and the sort of defensiveness that you can feel about work that is very personal and then also wanting the work to stand on its own and the and the cutting room floor has plenty (laughs) still on it but there was a lot to be learned in the process for me and in listening to how others heard the voices and understood the motion of the novel. So in that process, as you're bringing this before other eyes and other insights, I'm wondering if you could tell my listeners about moments when you found yourself fighting for these characters and moments when you found yourself fighting with these characters. What do you mean by fighting for, like fighting for what they would do in the novel or fighting it, it, that so my my thought is maybe somebody comes and reads your draft and says oh but this really doesn't work you need to shift it this way and you might have a moment of clarity where you're like i understand why you're saying that reader nevertheless I know that Sister Farm is going to want to go in this, and I'm naming one of the characters who is dubbed Sister Farm in the course of the book, or Sister Bird, who's the bird-watching sister and who writes guides on bird-watching there at the monastery. I know them, and they would do this instead. I guess that's what I mean when I say fighting for. Yeah, I I think there were voices where it was less about the what would this character do there weren't many questions there. Some of it was about the sort of 
pacing or plot or ways in which something unfolded within the community that really required, especially for characters that were, you know, mother lords that were, that are primary characters in a sense, but they come and go through the letters and aren't, they aren't Sister Athanasius and they aren't Miriam, who are the sort of two main voices. I think there was a lot of later back writing that I had to do to understand what drove different characters because it felt like it could be in character, but I didn't understand the ground of the ground uh, for writing into them. So I, I hope that kind of speaks into what you are asking. Yes. And and then to follow up on the second half of my question, were there any points where you had a desire for a character to go in a certain direction and you found that the character on the page was fighting you and going in that direction and that they almost, and I don't want to get too spooky about this, but they almost had a mind of their own? They all had a mind of their own. I couldn't, and I have to say that Little Sister was a very much a mind of her own as a character that I felt like I was writing and I kept not understanding what she was doing or like what anything meant of her like very sort of piercing angers and and then quick resolves and where that might have come from. So and I just I think I followed it until it found its own resolve. So I think that was one character that had that sense of, I will just follow you. I know some things about you and others I don't. And it seems like you are with, you are living in a mystery that you are creating about yourself. So continuing to do uh, a kind of analysis of structure, and I'm not sure of the right term for this. I believe in the Middle Ages, there was something that was referred to as a camera lucida, which is literally a darkened room and you have a little pinhole and through the the light of that pinhole, you can see the, the cityscape, the streetscape that's going on outside projected on the darkened wall. But it's one little point, but it shows you this entire world through that little point. I felt like these letters from Sister Athanasius were like that. And again, I don't know if camera lucida is the right term, but it felt like a pinhole. But through that pinhole, I saw so much. This monastery that is run by this fictional order of the Sisters of Hildegard of Bingen is such a fully realized world. And I was so delighted to be able to explore and play in this world with these characters, with these landscapes, with even the sidewalks outside of the monastery that are better than the paths that are inside for walking, like those little details. And so Help me to think about what it's like to realize a world like that, what it's like to discover that you're not just doing a correspondence between two characters, but you're opening it up to a vista where the reader discovers all these other personalities. I long ago heard Chaim Potak speaking about some of his writings and that one of his first encounters outside of the conservative Hasidic community he grew up in was with Evelyn Waugh's writing and that it was a world entirely different and entirely recognizable. And I 
have found that constantly draws me that there are universal elements that will be recognizable anywhere, whatever, wherever these nuns are, there is something to recognize about yourself. If it's baseball, if it's birding, if it's spirituality, it's a sort of microcosm, macrocosm is always a way in which you can find a particular detail opens up into a larger understanding. I don't know if I intend it in that way, but I certainly, when I read something in that vein and understand it to be both particular and universal, there's something in me that opens up. Well, and that was another thing that really delighted and fascinated me about your book, Little Hours. And that is, as I began to see this landscape within this pinhole of these letters, I began to see not what I expected. Like when I, from the outside, when I think about religious, whether men or women, I think about harmonious community. And what I began to discover was that this particular monastery of the Sisters of Hildegard of Bingen was anything but. There was conflict over the smallest things. There was conflict over large things. There were, but there, there were real moments where, for example, Mother Superior, Mother Lords had to step in and impose silence on certain characters so that they would stop fighting with one another. I want to hear a little bit more about how you as an author discovered that conflict along the way, because it felt so natural. It didn't feel like you had said, OK, I'm going to plot here and plot here and we're going to we're going to map this out where we've got the rising action, and the falling action. It felt like human life instead of something that had been plotted. So I want to hear about how you as an author discovered that along the way. Well, some of it is, it is this as I spoke about earlier, the a way in which you can put some of your questions to some of these characters and see what plays out, like how in a community and given this is not, this is a community based in a tradition, but it's not its own sort of tradition, how it can respond to these structures and strictures that can be for some people, very diminishing and for others, very freeing. And to see how that can play out, some of writing is like, what if, and then see where the characters take it. And they took it, they ran and it felt very familiar to me to see where problems arose and how problems might be not resolved and some that might be resolved and what kind of grace a community, a very small community with very strong characters could hold in that sense. Like where is a center that can hold and any community that I've grown up in communities and known there's some hopefully iron sharpening iron, but also just trouble and you And how do you work it out? And how do you, and sometimes as with one of the characters, Sister Farm, you leave because you think that's a way to peace. And then sometimes as with Sister Farm, you return. So yeah, it's, it felt like following life in that sense. And I've had responses from several nuns who have said, were you in the life? Because it's recognizable, the really fraught moments. And you spoke about the little flower, St. Therese 
I think one of the moments in her own writing is of somebody who is reciting the liturgy with her in the sort of choir and a very annoying person and how you hold something with love. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, writing coach, arts columnist, and painter. And today we're discussing her first novel, Little Hours. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, arts columnist, and painter. She's a graduate of the University of Connecticut and has degrees in art and creative writing. In addition to a long history of editorial work, she has worked as a curatorial assistant at an art museum, a high school English teacher, and a corn detasseler in the fields of Iowa. Today, we're talking about her recent novel, her first novel, Little Hours, which is set in a fictional monastery, the Monastery of the Sisters of St. Hildegard of Bingen. So I want to circle back to Hildegard of Bingen because she is a background in this novel. The sisters' monastery is named in her honor. She herself was a, an epistolary writer, and as we've mentioned, the, this is a novel that is written in the form of letters. But another aspect of Hildegard, which really fascinated me, and you mentioned this earlier in the, in the conversation when you used the word alchemy. And it struck me that Hildegard of Bingen was, among other things, an apothecary. She was a physician of sorts, a chemist that used homeopathic remedies. And so I want to ask about that kind of connection with Hildegard, the notion that somehow that Hildegard's presence here is a balm, a, a poultice, a healing presence, a kind of alchemical presence. Talk to me about how Hildegard is working in the background here. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. Hildegard of Bingen the letters, the I think the sense of agency was very important for me in thinking about an order um, that I might create. But what felt very generative, I mean, you have the, I don't know how to pronounce it, veriditas, the greening. You have, that it, that was very important for Hildegard. You have the medical, the herbal, the artwork that was a work of spirituality that was very modern in its conception, if you see some of her early paintings. And the, the music, I mean, this was a person who was had so many profound skills in so many different areas. And it felt like it was a holding place for whatever and whoever might be part of this order. And I'm so glad you are speaking to that. Well, and I'm curious as well, because it's not only St. Hildegard that shows up, but Blessed Julian of Norwich and St. Therese of the Little Flower, as we've said, and Teresa of Avila. And at one point, there's even a reference to uh, Teresa of Avila's interior castle that, that plays a part in uh, a sort of pivotal moment in the book. And I think that for many authors, it would be a temptation 
to have the various characters that we encounter be archetypes of these various saints. And so I'm wondering about the balancing act where these saints themselves are minor characters in your book, but you clearly didn't make the saints into characters in the same way that the characters that we meet in the monastery are. But I can imagine, because all of these saints, some of them, as you've mentioned, are doctors of the church, they've got very strong personalities in and of themselves, even when you're reading them on the page for research. And so was it ever difficult to keep them from intruding these various saints into your narrative to make it too much about the saintly life and not as much about the kind of quotidian life of the monastery? It was never a temptation to do that. It it was always an intention to be informed by these voices, but I didn't feel a worthy maybe translator of their works or their ideas, only that I had read them and had allowed them to sink into me. So in a sense, where some People have responded. One person responded saying, this is not a page turner, which would be sort of awful to hear, except that they went on to say it is something I read, you know, very small portions because it's a spiritual engagement throughout the novel. And I read it as a book of spiritual companionship. So I think in that sense, that the ways in which those women, those voices of the church inform the book is, was the only way I knew that felt like it would work. I I find that so beautiful. And as you were talking about the person saying, this is not a page turner, but rather I just take it in small doses. I immediately thought of St. Teresa, the little flower, St. Teresa of Lisieux saying, I don't do big things. I do little things with love. And I imagine readers reading this in little chunks with love. And that is just such a beautiful thought to me. And I wonder, as I say that to you, how do you respond when you hear someone say that? I just got the chills um, when you said that. So I'm deeply honored if those voices come through, if that companionship comes through, if people want to rest in a kind of contemplative reading, that is that is where my heart is. And also to not have chosen maybe some of the things that they wrote about, but some of the things that in the way that we're talking about baseball and the sort of the, the spirituality and what people think of as maybe not spirituality, where they come together is a really beautiful thing. And I think to make it, I mean, it's profoundly religious in that sense. I have had people respond and say, I have, I've, I have no interest in faith, religion, but there's something that happens with these women that is, is worth spending time with. And to me, that's the mix that I maybe I didn't know to intend, but that my heart intended before my pen could catch up. Well, there, there's another point where we could talk about the mix of the everyday and the transcendent. And I'm going to ask this question with a preface. My parents-in-law live here in the neighborhood with us, and every day they go on a long walk through the neighborhood. And one of the joys that they have is all the birds that they see along the way. Here in Chicago, we've got many natural areas, parks and lakes. And so they will stop and sometimes share with us 
pictures of some of the things that they, the birds that they've seen along the way. And so a real kind of through line of your book, Little Hours, is this idea of bird watching. And it becomes actually one of the inaugural sparks that begins the correspondence between Miriam and Sister Athanasius. And so I'd love to hear how did bird watching and birding come to be a part of this book? And how do you think about those aspects of Little Hours? Thank you for asking that because I'm a bird watcher from way back. And I think some of it has been my own engagement with seasons and land and watching the birds and also thinking about where the sisters were located and what it would mean to be in that space and to have each person part of what... I, in my imagination, saw as a focus of the order was that each person had a calling and that they needed to discern the calling and to live into it. And so one of the sisters, Sister Bird, I think that to me, it was both this exploration in humor because I just belted out with humor every time she would title a book or like you couldn't get more bird this bird that in a title but also this great love for birds and the transcendent and where those met and to me these places that feel so natural to many of us to to go bird watching and to understand these small creatures who have such particular personalities in each one just, I think, to me, held something explorable in that sense. And that was my biggest learning curve was actually the birds and making sure that I got it right with the seasons. I think I got most of the baseball information right, but the seasons and the migrations and the wild geese, the the white geese um, flying, those were all things that I needed to really pay attention to in different ways. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lil Copan. She is an editor, writing coach, arts columnist, and painter. And we're speaking today about her recent book, her first novel, Little Hours. Well, to stay with the image of birding and bird watching for just a moment, it strikes me that when one is intentionally bird watching, one is interacting with a landscape very differently than we as Americans have been trained to interact with everything. We're trained to interact with things as commodities for our consumption. But when you go out looking and hoping to spot a bird or to interact with the various birds in the landscape, they don't necessarily play by our rules or our expectations. And so a lot of it is having to be still and patient and willing to go home for want of a better word, empty-handed. It strikes me that's actually a really great metaphor for the spiritual life. And so I want to begin to turn the conversation towards these deeper matters. And so what does what can we learn from something like birding about how these characters and maybe people like you and me in the real world should begin to rethink our approach to spirituality? That's the biggest question of our being, I think, that we are living a daily life that is so infused to my understanding with a life of the spirit that 
it isn't segmented and that to the sisters on the landscape and to Sister Bird or Sister Athanasius seeing a heron and holding an image as something that that to them symbolizes the spirit itself, you know, this very still waiting and piercing when it goes. But it also has this incredible patience to wade in the water until it's time. And I, I don't, I think maybe I wrote into some of the understandings I was feeling in that sense that I started to see it so unified, the living of a daily life, the anger, the, the arguments, the birds, all still pointed to something that was the thing itself and the thing beyond itself. Oh, I like that phrasing, the thing itself and the thing beyond itself. And I think many of my listeners will resonate with that phrasing as well, because it's here in the very title of Things Not Seen, the idea that there's something greater than what is here in the everyday. Writing, you and I both know, is a process that can drive you a little nuts, and it takes both discipline and wildness to do it, and particularly to write about something that is as mysterious as the spirit or the spiritual life, I imagine can sometimes be a great well of grace and sometimes be a dry desert of frustration. So I'm very curious how your own spiritual journey shifted as a result of your engagement with these characters and your visits to this world of the Monastery of St. Hildegard of Bingen? I was so glad to be in constant visitation of the Sisters of St. Hildegard and, and their place in the world and their place within the world in that sense, that they lived in part in service to others. Uh, Mother Lords would be heading into the city to do the work that she loved, which um, was in many cases caregiving. And so the connections that I felt like I discovered in the writing and I discovered through the characters was of a spiritual life that was not divided down. It didn't feel, you know, it felt as real listening to a Red Sox game as it did, watching the birds as it did in my mind, hearing their reciting of the liturgy and their prayers. That, to me, one assumes that you write into what you know, but I felt I didn't know things that I wrote into that came as gifts to a spiritual life looking for something that had the structures, had a sense of grace within the structures, had the creativity of Hildegard of Bingen, all as holding as a really center point that could be lived from. So as I'm hearing you saying all this, I'm hearing some wonderful tensions. You're talking about creating this fully realized world. But at other points in this conversation, you've talked about the fact that these characters were real people to you and that they had volition of their own in your experience of writing them. So in one sense, as an author, you are forgive me, you're the god of this landscape. But you also find that the characters have volition and that they surprise you and, and pull in directions, and they don't always follow the things that you'd want them to do. And so now I'm going to really go for the transcendent question. I'm going to, to use the baseball analogy, swing 
so that I hit it a home run over that that green portion. Green monster. Exactly, the green monster. <laughs> if we imagine that God is an author, what does that do that gives us hope? And what should terrify us about that? Uh, I am so lost with that question. But I will, I mean, when you said, you know, as though you were the sort of the God creator of this, I heard it in the sense that I am in service to this. I, I, even though I have the things that I can bring of myself, to me, the listening and what tone is happening here and what is the tension and why can't it unfold more quickly? Those are all things you in service wait for instead of demand of. And I think there is no sense in which I could make the comparison of God uh, author and myself author. But I, what I might have learned in this space is that if creating something that to me is a profound landscape in words that I am in service to and that I can learn from, that gives me great joy in thinking about the creative process and this understanding of co-creators with God in which we are in profound conversation and in profound grace and love that doesn't diminish the structures, but that that gives the structures something beyond structure that holds past structure. I, I don't know. I don't mean to be over philosophical, but I think that is some of what I have learned about myself and about God. So I am incredibly moved by that answer. And I am so grateful that you trusted in that moment to try and answer what was a real swing for the fences questions, because I think you just hit that right out of the park. Uh, Lil Copan, I am so delighted, first of all, just to get the chance to talk to you, but especially because the occasion for talking to you has been this wonderful novel of yours, Little Hours. I got lost in this world. I loved these characters. I was moved. I, I hope that I get the opportunity to share this with my students because you've said it earlier, but I want to echo it. This is one of the best models for spiritual companionship step by step along the way that I've ever seen in print. It's a profound book. I hope that my listeners pick it up and will love it as I have loved it. Thank you for taking the time to write it, but thank you especially for taking the time today to speak with us about it. Thank you so much. It is a complete honor. We've been speaking today with Lil Copan. She's an editor, arts columnist, and painter. She's a graduate of the University of Connecticut and has degrees in art and creative writing. In addition to a long history in editorial work, she's worked as a curatorial assistant at an art museum, a high school English teacher, and as a corn detasseler in the fields of Iowa. Today, we've been talking about her first novel, Little Hours. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.